turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. Today we will look at portions of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is a long chapter. It runs um, almost 60 verses, and there is a lot packed into 1 Corinthians 15. And so I'm not going to be able to cover absolutely everything in there. We find within there the doctrine of uh, Jesus' subordination and relationship to the Father. We're not going to cover that today. Paul also deals with a false belief in there and a very quickly um, in the verse on the baptism for the dead. We're not going to cover that today, except to say that Paul was using that as an example that, hey, if if Christ did not raise from the dead and your loved ones will not raise for the dead, why are you baptizing on their behalf? And so he is using a negative example to prove his point there. But we're going to hit the high points today here in 1 Corinthians 15 and look at the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we'll read today 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is revealed into it. And we thank you for the for the confidence that we can have in it. We thank you that the spirit has been given to us to show us your glories in this word. And we thank you that the spirit is given to us so that our eyes might be open and our ears might hear the glorious truths presented to us today. Give us that spirit so that we might know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're told the story in Acts chapter 18 of Paul planting the church in Corinth. We 
We focus a lot of times on Paul's message in Acts chapter 17, that message to the philosophers and the educated people of Athens, where he sat there and he took that unknown God and he said, let me tell you about the God that you're worshiping as this unknown God. And he he picks apart their philosophies. He took one of their poets and he showed how how God works through even pagan poets to to show truth and to show grace. And and Paul had the astounding response of a of a handful of believers out of that, as well as being ridiculed for his belief in the resurrection. And then he went to Corinth. Uh, Corinth was a town that was part port city, part college town. And so think of all the debauchery that's, that, that, that centers around ports and harbors where sailors congregate and all the debauchery that centers around colleges and things like that where college students congregate. And that was the life of the city of Corinth. And Paul had an amazing ministry there and planted a very large church. But Paul, as was his, his normal mode of operation, didn't stay for more than a year and a half to two years in Corinth. And he went on to um, preach and to plant other churches. But he left godly people behind to take care of the church of Corinth. And he sent friends of his to check on the people in Corinth. And they brought a pretty bad report back to Paul several years later. And, and he wrote the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, to deal with the issues that his friends had brought to him were happening in Corinth. One author has one man has authored a commentary of the book of First Corinthians, and he has called it 20 controversies that almost killed a church. You think some churches today have issues. The church of Corinth had 20 problems that Paul had to address. And we're going to look at one of those problems today. And, and it's really kind of the foundational issue. Um, and we'll discuss as to why uh, the, the resurrection is that foundational issue. And if it's not true, if it's denied and not true, then the rest of it doesn't matter anyway. The first thing I want to look at is what Paul describes here is what I first preached to you. Uh, that word there in verse 3 that's translated of first importance could either mean that as it's translated there in the NIV of first importance, or it could also mean uh, this was the first thing I preached to you when I arrived. Either way, it's, it's pretty important. These four points that I'm going to list for us here that Paul gives. These four points are the basics of the gospel. The first point is that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now we have a problem. God has created the heavens and the earth, and as Creator, God has authority over everything that He has created. He created us as the crown of creation. He created us in His image, and He set us over creation, and He says, you rule in my place according to my rules. And Adam and Eve, and every person that has ever followed Adam and Eve on this earth have said, Nope, I'm going by my rules, not yours. We have put ourselves in the place of God. And God said to Adam and Eve, you follow my rules or you die. And, and that's, the, that's the judgment that sits upon each and every one of us because we have rebelled against God. We deserve His judgment. We deserve His displeasure. But Paul says, the first thing I preach to you is that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. I'm going to read for you a very familiar passage from Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. Isaiah and other prophets have talked about this king that is coming, this king in the line of David that would be the ultimate king for the nation of Israel. 
And they, they talk about this king in terms of military and political might and victory until we get to like chapter 42 of, the, of, of Isaiah, where Isaiah begins to talk about this king in terms of servant of God. And hear these words from Isaiah. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid the iniquity and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It goes on to say that he was oppressed, that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and he was silent and complicit in all of that. He willingly went to the cross to take the judgment of God upon sin, upon himself. In 2 Corinthians, as Paul is kind of praising the Corinthians for, for listening to the letter in 1 Corinthians and being on the right track of getting things right and fixing these 20 controversies, he reminds them, that Jesus was without sin and yet took sin upon himself so that we might have forgiveness, so that we might be reconciled with God. And so that's where Paul starts. He says, the first thing I taught you is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then he says, Jesus was buried. We all kind of go, duh, to that, right? Because when somebody dies, that's typically what we do is we bury them, right? But Paul's making a point here. It's like in the Apostles' Creed when we say he descended into hell. What Paul is saying is here is he was dead, dead. You know, there have been some theories floated that maybe Jesus just kind of passed out on the cross and he was maybe mostly dead, but not all the way dead. And what Paul is saying here is Jesus was buried. This is what we do with dead people. Jesus died on the cross. He really was dead and we buried him and everybody was without hope. Think of the apostles, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, walking in that dejection and that depression because their, their Messiah had died and the Messiah is not supposed to die. Paul's making the point here. He died on the cross and he was really dead. Everything that we deserve, physical death, spiritual separation from God, he suffered. But that's not where we're left. The third thing that Paul says that he taught to the to the to the Corinthians was that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, this one's a little bit more difficult than the first one where Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, because the commentators remind us 
There's no explicit place uh, like Isaiah where it says he was pierced for our transgressions. There's no explicit place in the Old Testament that says, but he'll raise again on the third day. So we have to kind of take a broad view of the Old Testament to look at this. And there is a pattern. It was really interesting as I was studying. There's a pattern of the presence of God and rescue coming to the people of Israel after three days. In Genesis, as Joseph is in in Egypt, he has been raised to the level of second in command. He has set the nation of Egypt Um, on pretty good footing at the top of a mountain, if you will, because the rest of the known world is in famine and yet Egypt has food. And Jacob, Joseph's father, is in uh, the land of Canaan, what we now know as Israel and Palestine, and they're starving because of the famine. So he sends 10 of his sons um, who actually sold Joseph into slavery. That's how Joseph ended up in Egypt. He sends 10 of his sons to go buy grain to bring back so that they can have food and survive. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And he has them put in jail. He accuses them of being spies. We're told he's testing them to see if maybe they've changed over the years after they have sold him into slavery. And we're told that he comes to these brothers in three days and releases them from prison. We see the presence of God in this three-day cycle at Sinai. We just wrapped up a series on the Ten Commandments. But in, in Exodus 20, we find the Ten Commandments. But, uh, we, God speaks to them out of the glory and the cloud on the mountain. But that glory and that cloud had descended upon Mount Sinai three days before, Jesus, or before God spoke the law to the nation of Israel. And there are other there's places in Hosea chapter six, as well as other places within the Old Testament where we have this picture of God's glory showing itself after three days and God's rescue coming after three days. And Paul says the third thing of the most important thing, the third leg of this most important thing that I told you is that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, according to scriptures. And oftentimes that's kind of the, the, the kernel, the, the, the foundation of the gospel that we preach. But Paul adds a fourth leg to the chair. We usually think of the gospel as a three-legged stool. Jesus died for our sins. He was dead, dead, and he rose again from the dead. But Paul adds a fourth leg to the stool. And that fourth leg is that the resurrection was witnessed. Look at what he says next there in 1 Corinthians 15. He said he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to the Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one born out of time may be a better way to understand abnormally born there. What Paul is saying here is that I have preached a gospel to you that is a historical fact, a historical reality. And if you're having trouble believing it, if you don't believe that this is true, that Jesus rose from the dead, because that doesn't typically happen. Here's a list of people that you can go check with who witnessed his resurrection. He says, first, he appeared to Peter. We're we're taken back to the gospels where Peter and John went to the tomb after the women had come to them and said, look, the body's gone. 
John tells us that Peter and John raced to the tomb and in a spark of humility, John says, and Peter, or no, John says, I won, but Peter was bold enough to go into the tomb before me. Peter goes in and sees the empty tomb. Then he says he appeared to the twelve. We think about the, the, the picture in the Gospels where the disciples are in that room afterwards. They've got the door locked because they're not sure if the Romans are coming after them next. And Jesus appears to them. Later on to Thomas because he wasn't there initially. He says, then he appeared to over 500 people, some of whom are still who are still alive. Then he appeared to James, and that's probably James, the brother of Jesus, because James, the disciple, would have been there with the twelve. And he said he appeared to me. And what Paul is saying there to the Corinthians, he says, look, there's these five hundred and twenty some odd people that are still alive that you can go ask about the resurrection, that they really saw Jesus walking around, talking, eating, drinking, fellowshipping with his friends after the resurrection occurred. We are reminded here that this is a historical event, one of the biggest attacks against Christian from the critical scholars and from the from the world around us is that, yes, Jesus was a person who existed. Yes, Jesus died on a cross. Uh, he died a criminal's death. He died a rebel's death. Uh, uh, a traitor's death. But the rest of that stuff, all those supernatural things, that, that was made up several hundred years later. That, that's, that's the attack that we have against the Scriptures. And what Paul writes here is he says, it's almost as if he's looking down the corridors of time, but God is, and this is inspired by God. And he says, look, there were eyewitnesses to this. And, you know, we're 2,000 years later. We don't have the option to go ask one of those 500 people uh, if they saw it and to tell us about it. But we have four eyewitness statements in the Gospels. We have Paul's record here of over 500 eyewitnesses. And we have Paul's own eyewitness account for us, not only in the book of Acts, but here in Corinthians and again in Galatians, where Paul says, I have seen the risen Savior, the man who died on the cross, rose and lived again. And then Paul goes on to tell about how this changed his life, how he persecuted Christians, how he tried to stamp out the church and to stamp it out of existence. He said, but Jesus appeared to me. And several years after that, here I am writing a letter to you, proclaiming the good news of the gospel and proclaiming the gospel's power to change our lives. But Paul doesn't end there with his defense of the gospel. He goes on in verses 12 through 19, and he gives us three negative um, uh, proofs for the, for the resurrection. The first thing he says, if I preach that Christ has been raised from the dead and he hasn't, well, then myself and all the other apostles were, are preaching is worthless. He says, what use is, us, is it of us to preach to you something that is not true? And he even takes it one step further and he says, not only is it worthless, it's a lie. Paul says, we are preaching a lie to you if Christ did not raise from the dead. Now, many people would agree with that today. Many critical people critical to the scriptures would agree with that until we consider the life of the apostles. Only one made it to old age. Only one of the 12 made it to old age. And it seems like from what we can tell, more than likely he died alone on an island. The rest of them were beaten or crucified or hung or beheaded for a lie? Really? 
The gospel is not about power. The scriptures are not about having power and getting wealth. It's about taking up our cross daily and following him. It's about being hated by the world as they hated Jesus Christ. Nobody's going to lie for a life like that. Nobody is going to preach something that's not true for something that may get them killed. But then he goes one step further. He said, not only are we giving you worthless preaching that may be false, but your belief is in vain or is futile. It's that word that we have show up over and over again in Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I preached this basic outline. It was a different sermon, but this basic outline this morning at a 630 sunrise service. And I looked out across those people that were sitting there at Island Park, got there at 630 in the morning, and I reminded them, this is weird. Okay, the fact that we were here at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning gathered in this this building with a steeple and stained glass windows feels normal to us because we've done it all our lives, many of us. But for the world outside of us, this is weird. We stand, we sing, we stand, we pray, we stand, we chant back and forth together. We, we do really weird things that the rest of the world thinks, man, that's just kind of odd. Paul says if the resurrection is not true, this, this, the, the hour to two hours we've been here on a Sunday morning is a colossal waste of time. It's worthless. It's pointless. As he says later on in the chapter, if none of this is true, let's do what the world does. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Stephen Hawking recently passed away. Um, Astrophysicist has written several books. Defied doctor's odds by living for well over 40 years with Lou Gehrig's disease. A disease that typically after being diagnosed, five to ten years tops is what people have. And it's usually on the lower end of that. He is being praised for his immortal reputation at his funeral. And yet, within a generation and a half to two generations, unless you're, an, unless you're an astrophysicist, you'll never know who Stephen Hawking is. Somebody will say, Stephen Hawking, you'll go, huh? Maybe he'll be like, you know, Einstein, and people will go, well, you know, Einstein did some type of mathy type stuff, and there are some pithy type things that he said about love and stuff like that. But the reality is, if this is not true, anything we do is worthless. Especially pursuing holiness. Pursuing holiness is hard. If I didn't have to do that, believe me, I wouldn't. But it's worth it because Christ has raised from the dead. Christ has reconciled me with God. Christ has given me the power to be holy as He is holy. And because of that, I have hope. I have a future hope. I have a present hope. The hope that I have in the future is this, that death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? We talk about this typically at funerals where we stand there at the graveside service and we say, we know that when Jesus returns, we'll have eternal life. The body will be raised, will be reunited with the body and soul will be reunited, except the body will have all those perishable things taken away from it. No more sickness, no more pain, no more tears, no more ailments, no more hair turning gray or falling out. All those difficulties that we have in this life will be gone and it will be joyous. But we have a present hope also because John tells us that eternal life is ours now. We have eternal life now. 
the basics of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose from the third day according to the scriptures. And all of this is historical reality that gives us hope. We live in a world that doesn't like this message because it strikes at our autonomy. It strikes at our false belief that maybe we're in control of our own lives. We're the captains of our own ships. But we're not. We are sinners before God without hope. Except for these four things. Jesus died according for Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again from the dead and it is real. This was so life changing and altering that when the church began to become an organized reality, they said, we need to celebrate this every week. How do we do that? We're told in the book of Acts that they instead of meeting on the Sabbath, they met on the first day of the week because Christ rose from the dead. You know, it is good for us to get together and to think specifically today about Easter. But it's a reality that we celebrate every Sunday when we gather together as the people of God. We are here gathered because we are reconciled by God through the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If that's a reality that you don't understand, please come talk to me today after the service or at some point. This is life altering. It took a man who murdered Christians and turned him into a man who took the gospel to the known world. And it's a reality that can change your life as well. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for the revelation that Paul has given to us, the reminder that we are not hopeless and and wasting our time. But we are tied by the work of Christ to the God of the universe. We are adopted by him as sons because his only begotten son came and died for our sins and was buried and rose again from the dead. And we have these eyewitness statements that remind us that this is real and this changes lives. Thank you for what we celebrate today and help us to celebrate it every day and every Sunday. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.